This is Our Prisons the Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Bestman and Leo Hilton. Today we are talking with Marley Liss, a somatic educator, restorative justice advocate and speaker, and Jasmine Story, a healing justice educator, facilitator, doula, farmer, interrupter, builder, and PhD fellow about restorative justice, what it is, what it isn't, and the depth of its power to address interpersonal harm on many levels. I'm Leo Hilton, a currently incarcerated resident at Maine State Prison, visiting instructor with Catherine at Colby College, and a restorative justice scholar practitioner of six years. My co-host, Catherine Bestman, is not able to join the program today. This show explores how we keep our community safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? You are both outspoken advocates for restorative justice and serve this work in different capacities. So can you both please introduce yourselves to our audience? What brings you into the work of restorative justice and why do you believe in it so much? Let's start with you, Jess. Well, one, thank you. I'm really, really honored to be here with both of you. I know that we're about to have a beautiful dialogue. Um, my name is Jasmine Elise Story. My pronouns are they, them. And what brings me to restorative justice is really a need for a deeper understanding of the systems that I was actively um, impacted by. And that is both as a survivor of violence and someone who lost a sibling slash parental figure to the system as an incarcerated person. Um, and so my look towards restorative justice was really to find and understand what was happening. And through that, I found scholars, practitioners who were providing alternatives, not only methodologies, but tools, understandings, frameworks to really look at how we can create a healing that is as holistic as the harm that is happening interpersonally and at the communal and structural level. So deep personal involvement. Um, thank you. And the work that you do is absolutely incredible. So can you speak just a little bit to that? What, what is it that you do? Because <laughs> you do amazing work. So can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, so I do a lot of things. I do a lot of things. I know you know that. Um, I do things that keep me insured. I operate as a conflict and transformation strategic advisor. I support communities in imagining new systems and then building them. I think often there is this separation between heart-centered work and strategy, and people feel like they can't be both, but nature is strategic. Um, nature in its most organic emergent form has strategy. And so what I try to do with my work and with my colleagues is to provide strategic pathways that still are organic when it comes to shifting the experiences of those around us. And I do that through Honeycomb Justice Consulting, which is our consulting group. But I also have Freedom Farm Azul, which is a 15-acre um, healing-centered farm where we center two communities in Alabama that experience unbelievable uh, structural violence while going through transition. And tra we leave transition to really being in, in its largest natural um, meaning and definition. And those are our formerly incarcerated and returning citizens, siblings, and our LGBTQIA plus siblings. And so in this space, we create um, opportunities for people to experience nature. And that can be very, very hard in the rural South to experience nature as you are um, and that be safe. 
and as well as learning how to reconnect with land and actually nurture and nourish one's body, as well as nurture and nourish one's spirit through social emotional learning opportunities. And so that's what Freedom Farm Azul does. It's named after two beautiful um, women of color, Fannie Lou Hamer and Frida Kahlo. And Freedom Farm Azul, the Freedom Farm piece is to honor Freedom Farm Cooperative, which was Fannie Lou Hamer's cooperative that fed so many people in Mississippi independently and providing them with their own pathways through mutual aid to self-sufficiency and Casa Azul, because not only does Frida walk at the intersections of queer, disabled, and a woman of color, more importantly to me, uh, Frida politically fought deeply for communal values that were deeply connected to her indigeneity. And so we really honor our, our Black, Brown, and Indigenous siblings in, of the past with the present on the farm. Thank you. And uh, I got to say, Fannie Lou Hamer <laughs> is a name that just is never said enough. Um, so Marley, can you please introduce yourself? Um, what brings you into RJ and why do you believe so much? Well, I must start by saying that I'm absolutely fangirling because you are both such incredible people who have done such amazing work and just beam um, this movement through embodiment that's so felt. The restorative values are so felt just in both of your embodiment, your presence. So yeah, it's such a pleasure to be on this call. But yeah, what brings me to this work is... Um, I actually didn't know that restorative justice existed until a few years ago when I was three years into a um, punitive process in the colonial criminal justice system for a sexual assault that I had experienced. And at the time when I did choose to report, like I said, I had no idea that this existed as so many people, so many survivors I speak with do. That's the most common thing I hear when I share my stories at universities, different contexts. People say, I had no idea about this, um, which was my case for sure. So when I did report in my state of shock, in my state of trauma, lack of information, all these things, um, I was basically told you can pursue this criminal justice process or do nothing at all. And I didn't want nothing at all. Um, that felt very devastating. So I said, okay, I guess I'll go with this. And every step of the process felt wrong to me. Um, it felt immensely re-traumatizing. It felt like there was no purpose to it at all. The court process was awful. I felt like I was the one on trial, lots of victim blaming, lots of turnaround. Well, my assailant just kind of sat there and stared at the ground and he was a stranger to me. And I had this really, really deep want and need to talk to him, to humanize him, to take him from this like scary entity in my nightmares to a person, a human being with a story. I had questions. I wanted context. Having this level of hope in people, this level of um, expectations of care, this is, you know, what led me to get hurt. And so I really judged this want that I had for restorative justice, although I didn't have that name yet and no one was giving it to me, right? I think that's such a big part of this is for three years, I spoke to nurses, advocates, therapists, lawyers, crown attorneys uh, in the state's prosecutors. 
And no one ever said, oh my gosh, it sounds like the process you're describing is restorative justice or transformative justice. And that is a thing with a lineage and a process. And so I started researching and that's when I came across restorative justice. And it was such a huge moment for me where I was like, holy cow, this thing (laughs) has a name and a lineage. And so, yeah, I started fighting for that and getting connected with different folks who've been in this space for a long time. And I went and um, called a meeting with the prosecutors basically and told them that this is what I wanted. And there was this very big back and forth process of folks in the system who really believed that the colonial punitive approach Um, is the way to do it, that justice equals punishment. And that's how we address these things. And that's not going to change. And then there was also folks in the system in that space who said, I've kind of lost faith in this. Like I've been in this system for, there was one prosecutor, uh, Kara Sweeney, said, I've been in the system for 20 years and I constantly see victims re-traumatize rapists acquitted and in the rare case that they are incarcerated it just leads to more hurt more trauma eventually more violence we've got to try something different so she really really fought for it to have this restorative conclusion and eventually you know we were heard in that sense which was incredible I'm grateful for that every single day every single moment but my assailant was immediately sent to therapy for seven months and he went through a very deep process of unpacking all the different things in our cultures that are complicit in this trauma. And eventually we met in an eight hour restorative justice circle using the indigenous approach as a conferencing practice. And it was way beyond my expectations, but aligned with my dreams. And so I got to validate that part of me again that said, wow, it's not naive to believe in transformation and believe in care and kindness. It's actually really, really strong. It's really beautiful. It's courageous. It's what we need. And so every single person left the circle that day. um, And it was a community oriented approach. So my mom was there as someone impacted. My sister was there. He, my assailant had a best friend with him. Every single person left that circle, a better person, transformed, more empathetic, way more connected to our emotions, even to one another. And so it absolutely changed my life. And from that day forward, I was like, I'm never going to shut up about restorative justice. So (laughs) um, ended up sharing my story in the media and just hearing from thousands and thousands of survivors and people impacted by sexual violence all over the world and people who would be in every seat of that circle um, saying, you know, I wish I knew about this. Wow, this was so healing to read about. It uh, um, affirmed my beliefs in humanity and reminded me that like hope is a valid and beautiful thing. Another gift to this world you are. And such power and courage it takes to fight for what you want, fight for what you need. And it hurts my heart that both of you have had to do so much work to be validated in your life experience. And the I am awed by the ongoing courage that it takes for both of you to show up in the world the way that you do and to call us into a better future than what we seem bound and determined to allow ourselves to settle for. So thank you both. 
This is Justice Radio, and today we are talking with Marley Liss, a somatic educator, restorative justice advocate and speaker, and Jasmine Story, a healing justice educator, facilitator, doula, farmer, interrupter, builder, and PhD fellow about restorative justice, what it is, what it isn't, and the depth of its power to address interpersonal harm on many levels. So thank you both so much for sharing, for using your voice in such powerful ways. And we left off hearing from Marley about her experience and what brings her into this work. Now that you've shared why you believe in restorative justice, right? Can you define for us, what is it? What is restorative justice? And more, maybe more importantly, what is it not? Marley, let's start with you this time. Yeah, restorative justice on a very basic level is an approach, a set of principles that are prioritizing repair rather than punishment. And it can be traced back to indigenous, Jewish, Mennonite communities. And it can look many different ways. I think that's something that people don't always realize that restorative justice can take many shapes and forms. And to me, what it means is that we're building a bridge again between justice and healing. Whereas our punitive criminal justice system that we always see, you know, in the media, with the courtrooms and all that kind of stuff um, has really normalized this idea that justice is going to be an obstacle to healing rather than a catalyst and has really normalized that idea and said, well, this is just what we have to do to get our justice, which in that system equates to punishment. And I think that taking a moment as human beings to connect to our own bodies, our own feelings, our own emotions, and just check in with ourselves and be like, is that cool with me? <laughs> that we've made justice and healing in opposition to one another. Um, because to me, it feels incredibly violent that we would respond to violence with that violent of a system. So restorative justice is really saying, let's not do that anymore. Let's take the humane approach that really prioritizes healing and recognizes that we can't have justice without healing. And that's for all parties involved. And what it's not is a one-size-fits-all approach to justice. So my experience was immensely healing for me and very much in line with what I needed. And it was also in line with what was accessible in that moment. I also want to mention that my assailant wasn't in a place of taking full accountability when this was first proposed to him. And so I think a lot of people will write this off as an option right away at that point and say, okay, so we can't do restorative justice, but taking a moment to diversify the way it looks and say, no, we're not going to do what the criminal justice system did and create a new box that says you've got to fit in here or you, you get nothing at all. Um, we're going to really take a needs-based approach, see what the person who was harmed, the person who caused harm, see what's needed here and then create a justice pathway that's compatible with that. Thank you. <laughs> and I really hope people are listening right now. That's amazing. Jasmine, could you expound a little bit on what Marley has shared with us? What, from your perspective, what is RJ and what is it not? So for me, and I, I just, I really, really echo, I feel in deep alignment with everyone, everything that Marley said. Um, so I want to start there. And to just add and contribute, I would say that 
this is a process that is focused on the needs and also illuminating the obligations. And, you know, sometimes we, we hear the word obligation. And I think in so much of the context of the West, that word feels like burdensome, right? This idea of obligation. Um, but it, I actually, I'm like thinking about, I was watching the TV show Community the other day, and there's this moment where a, a person in the friend group doesn't want there to be gifts exchanged at the holidays because he feels like it's an obligation. And one of the characters turns back to reflect on him and goes, no, um, the obligation is the gift. And when I think about society, right, restorative justice is a process that says, no, the obligation is a gift. Um, and what our process does is help illuminate who is obligated and how they can activate their assets to address the needs in the space. Now, those needs may be born out of harm and those needs may be born out of systems and they might be a little column A and a little column B. And so restorative justice asks the questions, what are the needs? How do we understand the harm so that we can understand the needs? And who is obligated to meet these needs and how do we as a community ensure that they successfully step into that gift, right? That gift of that obligation. Uh, what it's not is a cure-all for colonial and structural violence. And I think that that is really, really important. For me, I, I really, you know, I'm thinking like you can't blame the lily for not being able to survive in concrete and know that some of those impediments that the process may have is going to deeply be due to the toxicity of the larger system of which it's trying to live. And so restorative justice is not a cure-all to systemic violence. What it can do is interrupt, it can mitigate, it can shift us away from replication, um, but it will not cure it. Um, it is larger than that. And the work and responsibility um, of our society to undo these structurally violent uh, traditions that all of us are constantly living in, um, or realities are constantly living in, is, is much larger than much larger than the circle or the conference or the program. Um, this is large movement work and we are one, we are one little win in a journey towards larger big wins. Beautifully said. <laughs> um, thank you both so much for using your voice, calling for change in this world that is so set on the status quo the very harmful status quo. Now let's get into some hard stuff. What are the limitations of restorative justice? Jazz, you alluded to it a little bit there um, about it not being a cure-all, but people tend to criticize restorative justice as a slap on the wrist or easily co-opted by systems of punishment. And so could you share briefly, what can't restorative justice do? Where does it fall short? Marley, what do you think? I'm such a, a reckless optimist, so I struggle not to flip the question. <laughs> um, so I think that restorative justice has immense limitations when, like Jasmine said, we're navigating concrete, right? The lily's not going to grow in the concrete. So I really feel like in order to address those limitations, we actually have to turn our focus towards that concrete, towards the context, rather than blaming the um structure of or approach of restorative justice. So I feel like I've seen and witnessed magic happen when we start to shift that concrete and shift those contexts and imagine different possibilities and even embody different possibilities. An example of that is 
um, making it safe to take accountability. Because as we know, in our punitive culture, thin systems of incarceration, white supremacy, homophobia, all of these different oppressive systems, it's not safe to take accountability. There are um, horrible, horrible, violent, dehumanizing consequences to that. So of course, we can't expect someone to willingly say, yes, I did it. I'm ready to take accountability. I'm here for transformation. Let's do the work. Let's do the thing. Like, it's really um, dangerous, actually, to do that. So when we start to create systems and environments where it's safe, and the result isn't going to be punishment to such a dehumanizing degree, but it's actually going to be support, community care, commitment to change, um, righting our wrongs, doing accountability in a way that feels life-giving to the person who caused harm as well. I think we see that on a smaller level in certain mesosystems, like in schools, where restorative practices have started to be implemented instead of um, accountability resulting in detention or suspension, it resulting in mediation, circles, healing conversations, um, more support and care for the child questioning into where is this behavior coming from? Is the child recreating violence that they've witnessed and do they need support, right? So that disrupts this cycle of harm and actually starts to introduce healing and liberation and freedom transformation. So that's just one example of like, let's start to shift the concrete and then the, li the lily starts to thrive. That was such beautiful imagery that I'm never going to forget. So thank you, Jasmine. Jazz, what can't restorative justice do? Hey, once again, our, I'm like fully in Camp Marley. So I just like, it's the system. Um, an example, like if I were to walk through um, a process where the system may be the true impediment. Um, if we are working with young people in high school that are experiencing um, interpartner violence, right? So we're talking about high schoolers, right? We're talking about young, uh, young people and they are not provided with uh, supportive insurance to provide them with mental health support. Their homes are not full of food. Um, their support systems are either inefficient because they are state supported. So whatever it may be, all of these things surrounding these two is actively creating impediments for them to actually walk through a process. It doesn't matter how earnest and how deep their desire is to be in good community, to end the violence that is being enacted in a power dynamic in this space, right? All of these things both have an interest in undoing, but without systemic support, you're looking at a K-12 restorative justice coordinator who's looking at these two children and their resources are probably that they themselves got two weeks professional development in restorative justice practices before they were placed in that high school. And so, right, so all around, we here we have this whole little microcosm of opportunity and all of it collapse. And from the outside in, if it's the school board or someone else, they're going to say, well, this process is failing. 
And these children were failed before they walked into the school, school building. And then the, the educators around them who are supposed to be providing them with support do not have the resources to. And so they are being failed by the, the system that is supposed to be catching them when they are not protected outside of it. And so I fully agree that it is the limitations of the concrete that it is not the limitations of the restorative justice. And when we think about the origins of this work, Marley gave a great rundown of, of some of the communities where there as, is, as Fanya Davis says, a restorative ethos, right? A global restorative ethos. These communities are communal societies. They are communal societies, which means these processes lived and worked and succeeded because there was already a collective understanding that we meet each other's needs. We are introducing something from these spaces into an individualistic society. And so the contrast, we are asking a freshwater fish to swim in salt water. And that is the limitation. It is not necessarily the process. And then you said, like, where does it fall short? I will say that it's important to hold also systemic partners accountable to this. Um, this is something that I've been trying my best to start writing about. If you're trying to launch a restorative justice program and you'll settle for $40,000 from your grant giver instead of demanding the $250,000 that you know is required to do this program to fidelity, to provide the right clinical social workers on staff, to provide the right community practitioners with professional development, whatever it is, you are failing us. I would rather it not exist than for it to be watered down mess. I think that like that is us leaning into the concrete and deciding maybe we just shouldn't be lilies. Like maybe we should just be like dandelions or something. Like maybe we should. And it's like, no, 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 no. These people will do what we need them to, to do if we make it clear there's only one way to do it and that's well. Um, we're not settling for less anymore. So I will say that a, a pitfall is the, is some of the humans who are, who are supporting and doing this work in the movement. It is not worth it if you cannot do it well. It actually harms all of the work that is being done to fidelity um, and our ability to collectively uplift and advocate at the highest level. There is such power in these practices and processes and the ethos of restorative justice. And so what it feels like to me is a call into community that when rather than continuing to focus on trying to tear apart the lily, we need to shift our focus to the concrete, the systems that continue to function in a level of toxicity that perpetuate harm instead of creating the conditions to heal it. And so thank you both for sharing such wisdom. And I'm going to need to go back and listen to this a couple few times to learn me a thing or two. <laughs> um, you both are just absolutely incredible. So to our listeners, please listen to this with me two or three times. Um, learn you a thing or two as well. And if you're interested in learning more, both Marley and Jasmine have their, um, have their websites. So marleyliss.com and jasminestory.com. And you can also look for a restorative justice organization near you. There is good work going on all over the state. You've got Restorative Justice Institute of Maine, Restorative Justice Project of Maine, Panquist, Aristic County Action Program, Youth-Led Justice, right? Look, do the research. These two amazing people have done the work, done the research, and are making waves in this world to build community and healing in a system 
within systems that just seem bound and determined to prevent them. So thank you for being the change makers and the amazing human beings that you are in the world. So next week, please join Marian Anderson for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. With thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series, and to Luke Brown, our sound engineer. We are Justice Radio.